This is Synthetic A Priori, Episode 8. I'll start off with a couple sort of news items today. The first is I was listening to the Econ Talk podcast this week, and Nassim Taleb was the guest. And it was cool to hear that one of the points that he raised as a very important point that, that he felt he, he kind of hadn't articulated uh, through years of work until recently has to do with the difference between making a point forecast versus understanding the properties of a system. And this is something that he talks about in a, in a recent paper that he wrote with some collaborators. By point forecast, I mean, that means like uh, being able to predict a specific number. Uh, and, and of course, it's nice when, when you have such a fine understanding of something that you can actually predict the value of a measurement that's going to come out. Of course, this is like probably even kind of um, due to a lot of the uh, successes in physics over the last hundred years. I think this has come to be something that a lot of people expect of science, that if you if you understand a phenomenon, you should be able to give a very precise measurement. Um, this, I think the extreme of this comes from uh, probably Feynman's popularization of quantum electrodynamics. I remember that uh, there was a lecture he gave where he was describing the precision of the uh, of the measurement predictions from QED, and he said that if you think of the 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 measurement, if you think of the distance from your face to the moon, and then and then you nod your head up and down, the the error in the measurements of QED are are comparable to the to the distance that your chin moves, right, relative to the to the distance to the moon. So this is quite impressive, right? Uh, but but Nassim's point in this paper is that, uh, of course, it's nice when science can do this, but this is not the definition of science, and this is not even necessary in a lot of cases, that uh, rather than producing point forecasts, that uh, science is, is, is fundamentally about understanding properties. And, and what I think he means by properties is being able to understand the dynamics of the system in terms of kind of how does it work and what does it do and what does it mean for us so for example uh, if we understand gravity then then we know what will happen if we jump off the cliff and uh we don't need to have a specific uh measurement of any kind to meaningfully act on this information right and there's a a lot of things are like this and uh this is a i enjoyed hearing this because to me it felt like it perfectly mirrored some things that I've been thinking about, um, which is natural because a lot of it has been by reflecting on his work. Uh, but in connection to stuff we've talked about here about making estimates of design projects and how uh, we don't actually necessarily need to focus on a number and say this is going to take 12 and a half days. Uh, it's more about looking at the properties of the work and saying, are there independent elements here that we understand? And therefore, whatever kind of rough estimate we make is going to be more or less in the ballpark. Or are there a lot of interdependencies 
uh, and connected unknowns that are going to cause kind of cascades of unknowns, meaning that we could be 10x or 100x off in our estimate. And actually understanding these properties of the work is more important than coming up with a number, right? Because the, the type of variation, the type of error around that number is so different that it's going to uh, seriously affect the way that we act and, and what we expect to happen. So this was just cool to hear. Um, it's nice to see some, some kind of resonance, you know, across what we're talking about here and, and other discussions that are happening elsewhere. Uh, the other thing that came up is uh, Christopher Alexander uh, has a school now based in Italy called Building Beauty. And this school is, is very, very hands-on, uh, focused on uh, kind of unified construction and design. And uh, due to the, you know, the today's circumstances with limited travel and so on, they've been doing some online programs. And one thing that they're starting to explore is actually um, a, a initiative around software. And this is some kind of a response to, there seems to have been a resurgence of interest in his work, which is, which is exciting. You know, the, the, the software community got into Alexander's work in a big way in the 90s, but what came out of it doesn't align very deeply with his work, actually. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really cool to see the influence that he had on things like design patterns and um, uh, a, a number of really important, excellent books like Domain-Driven Design and Small Talk Best Practice Patterns were kind of modeled as as pattern languages so of course there was a great influence there but really if you look at the at the at the big picture mainly the software industry took patterns as another name for modules as another name for off-the-shelf components that you can piece together so that you don't have to think as much when you do design and this is this is an efficiency gain um, but it's not making a better world right and this is really what alexander's work is about uh, it doesn't go very deep. Um, uh, so uh, what's interesting is that there's a there's a new wave of interest now, and it feels like there's a little bit of a parallel here because where a lot of the kind of methodology talk that was happening in the 90s was centered around the implementation of software, there's much more interest today around the the so-called product which means the, the the relationship between the implementation and the user interface design and what the thing actually does uh, for a person in a situation. So kind of integrating all of this through uh, into more of a, a kind of a real life moment. And when we get up to that level, then of course it's, it's, it's excellent if the implementation of some code can be beautiful, right? Uh, and there is beauty to be found there or to be made um, but I think that we will find that this is this is a little bit like akin to uh, improving our understanding of the materials of a building. You know, this is it has meaning at its level, but it, it's not going to uh, significantly impact the life of a person the way different design decisions about you know the layout of the building uh, or the sequence of the problem solving of the of the major aspects of the building would um so i think that there's a there's a parallel here where the focus on product kind of means actually a focus more on the 
and the what do we say like the uh the 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 impact the payoff rather than just the implementation detail and so this is um there seems to be some also some resonance there and i also gave uh i gave a lecture a live stream lecture yesterday about christopher alexander's work there have been more and more folks reaching out saying hey where do i go to get started where can i learn about this and I've never had anything to to point people to, and I had been thinking about writing something for a long time, and this seemed a little bit too daunting of a task. So finally, I thought, okay, let's just commit to to an hour of live stream time, and then something will happen. And uh, and something did, and I uh, uh, I'll, I'll link that in the show notes so you can check it out if you want. Um, but uh, I was really pleased to actually hear from some of the folks involved in in the Building Beauty project, uh, saying that they. They they thought that the lecture was really valuable and uh, um, and so uh, let's see kind of what comes out of that. Um, maybe we'll find that there's some more conversation happening uh, from more people about all of this, uh, and 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 this will be interesting. For today, I thought we could talk a little bit about a question that's been in my mind which is um, how do we characterize, we've talked a lot on the show about supply and demand, and we've talked about, um, on the Alexander lecture yesterday, I talked about the, the totally isomorphic concepts of form and context. So there's the, the, the thing that we make, and then there are the requirements imposed on the thing we make by the dynamics of the situations that people find themselves in, where we are trying to improve their capability or remove some struggle or help them make progress, right? So the fit between between these two. And uh, very often what happens is um, when we look at these concepts, we kind of imagine kind of a black and white. You know, there's there's the form I'm going to make or the supply side of what I'm doing. There's the context of the what people are struggling with or how we're going to try and improve their lives, which is the demand side. And then there's this notion that I'm going to do my best to understand the, 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 the demand in order to inform myself with the right requirements for the supply, right? So I'm going to basically, um, through understanding form and context and setting the boundary in the right place and creating the right type of requirements, I'm going to put myself in a situation where I can best uh, judge and tune the fitness between the two, and this is more or less my design goal. This is a, I think, a, a as as a piece of theory or as a um, uh, as a basic model of what we do in design is is excellent as a starting point uh, because it allows us, for example, when we are uh, stuck in a problem or we are in a difficult uh, conversation with with a team we can kind of untangle ourselves by saying for a second, wait a minute, like what, what, what are we, what are we talking about here? You know, is this just an idea from the supply side or is this motivated by something we understand on the demand side? How do we know if what we're doing, if what we're talking about is relevant or if it's good and so on. So at a given point in time, this is a really useful split. However, it, it could create uh, maybe a mistaken view where we could imagine that uh, 
I'm going to inform myself as well as I can about the about the, the, the context or the demand side up front. I'm going to somehow set some requirements and then I'm going to go design a solution to fit those requirements. And I'm just going to test solutions against those requirements until I reach one that has the best fitness. This, uh, in practice, doesn't work as a one-shot thing. There is some iteration to this. And the question is, how do we describe the character of this iteration? I'm working on a side project right now. This is an app for uh, doing the data collection and, and analysis for job to be done, hire and fire interviews. And there's a lot of uh, steps in that process that happen across different tooling today. So you, you'll do an interview. Uh, from the interview, you will debrief and then get uh, these so-called forces, which are like kind of the most important causal factors from the interview. And then there's a step of kind of pooling all those forces together and then affinitizing them. And one of the best ways to do that uh, currently is to actually print out every force from every interview as a little strip of paper and then do kind of a physical sorting exercise uh, on a tabletop where you kind of group together forces that have the same uh, intent and the same uh, kind of causal circumstance around them. Uh, so then we, we get to a point where we've aggregated these... Um, these forces into sort of affinitized groups by piling these strips of paper together. These affinitized groups get names, and then there's a there's a coding process. And this coding process happens in like a spreadsheet tool where uh, you kind of populate a matrix with ones and zeros for given every um, affinitized group, which becomes kind of like a like a dimension in a high dimensional space. Uh, we can we code each each story against every one of those possible causal factors and then uh, we can run that now we're exporting from Excel putting that into a statistical package and then we can uh, do some clustering kind of in that vector space to see which of the stories are kind of near or far from each other in this kind of high dimensional space of, of causal factors and then we get the jobs out of that and uh, there's a lot of in and out of different tools and the, the, the aim of this piece of software is to kind of um, become a more of a, an appliance that that does it all, and uh, a lot of this, a lot of the parts of the app are fairly straightforward. But there's one part, this affinitizing step, is tricky. You know, um, uh, to repli replicate the experience of printing out all of these strips and and uh, being able to sort them and group them, uh, it's actually quite difficult on a on a in software because the amount of real estate that you have on a screen is much, much less than the amount of real estate you have on a table. There's there's a great number of forces involved. It could easily be a uh, hundred or more um, forces that get aggregated down into, uh, into 10 to 20 groups. And uh, the, the, the demands on the UI are also quite high because it's we, we, we prototyped a version that was very, very lo-fi and uh, it wasn't very effective. Um, and it seems, it seems that the ability to actually 
kind of drag and drop these or you know on the table move these strips of paper around or on a screen drag and drop them it seems to be important to have this kind of high fidelity very kind of uh real world uh manipulation it, it seems to be cognitively important in the sense that by touching something and moving it into a kind of arbitrary place that this this means something in our memory of of okay i moved that over there and that means it's kind of like maybe it's a new group or it's waiting for something else similar or it's different than these other things and there's some there's a lot of subtlety there um so uh we talked through um uh the folks that i'm working on this with we talked through an idea for a better interface for this that is a little bit more uh more drag and drop and a little bit more we're kind of willing to entertain a little bit more complexity in the build out of this thing and but the problem is uh i feel like i have a fairly good understanding of what the task is and i've got an idea for how to implement this as a software concept but there's this big gap between um, how much do we have to build to actually interact with this thing and and try it so uh, coming back to to the beginning here we've got an idea for the form i think i have an understanding of the context or you know to use this to use the the corresponding terms like on the supply side i think i know what to do i think i understand the demand side but the fit how am i going to judge the fit and i don't want to uh invest all of the time i mean side project time goes slow you've got an hour or two on a weekend or, or in an evening here and there i don't want to invest all of this time to to build out an entire sophisticated drag and drop interface to find out that that actually it doesn't quite work right. Um, I can't anticipate all of the little details about does it matter if 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 I pile up all the forces in a pile and the and the top force kind of hides the forces underneath, you know, is that okay or do I need to see all of the forces in a pile to sort of judge what the pile is and if if I if I if it's okay to to pile one thing on top of another in a stack, then I can show all of the stacks at once on the screen because I'll have enough real estate. Versus if I need to kind of put all of the items adjacent to each other that are in a group, so I so that none of them obscure the others, this is going to require uh, a lot more real estate, more than there probably is. Which means, do we have to allow panning around? Do we have to allow zooming around? You know, how do we arrange the elements on the screen if one group has many items and another group has very few items? This just gets, it just gets complicated, you know. And there's a lot of questions that, that kind of we don't know how to answer without a prototype. So uh, what I ended up doing was um, I built a prototype that's not actual software uh, I built a prototype in OmniGraffle so uh, first of all actually I did a I did a rough version in in HTML and CSS as a, as a sort of web interface in order to feel to feel out um, what is going to be natural in that medium in terms of like the layout of elements you know the using a grid or, or not or, or how to make this work in CSS 
and of where things are going to line up and then, and then how they would fill the screen as some kind of a starting point. And I took that really rough layout, took a screenshot of it, put it into OmniGraffle. And OmniGraffle, if you don't know, is a kind of um, generic diagramming tool. And um, I, this, um, what I was able to do was kind of create a simulation of, of as if this, if this was software, you know, it would give me a whole bunch of little more or less strips of paper to move around with the forces on them. So I took a bunch of forces from a real project and I uh, pasted them in and then turned them into little rectangles and OmniGraffle that I could drag around. And then I uh, kind of reproduced the model of, of what we thought we wanted in the software. So I kind of created a little area in the in the in the in a sort of fake interface where I could drag in ten of these forces at a time, look at which one of these uh, kind of goes with others versus kind of doesn't go with the others, and then start making piles on one side of the screen out of these strips. And what I discovered was I actually recorded a video of myself doing this, and I did a real affinitizing task in this kind of jig in OmniGraffle. And when I reviewed the video of myself doing it, I noticed that there were a lot of things that I didn't know mattered that turned out to matter. So for example, I I managed using the kind of um, interface model that we thought we were going to do, I managed to group all of the forces into piles. And and this this worked out for the first pass. But then when I went to the next step, which is to actually name the piles, I noticed that uh, I had made mistakes. Uh, or, you know, maybe they're not mistakes. Maybe it's just how the first pass is. There were, when I tried to name the pile, it, all of a sudden I realized like, oh, wait a minute. Like, I don't have a good name for this, which means that these things probably aren't the same enough, which is uh, a whole nother awesome subject. I love this. I love how naming makes us look at the semantics of what we're naming. And if the semantics kind of aren't coherent enough, it's too hard to name. And then this is a sign that we have to kind of refactor what goes into the thing that we're naming, right? And so this is what happened. Uh, I, I'm trying to name it. I realize I can't really name it. And now all of a sudden, what I want to do is I want to kind of pull apart that pile and redistribute the elements into different piles. And the original interface concept didn't allow this at all. And it raised all kinds of questions about, okay, like, well, how, how do we allow you to, you know, to, to, how do we allow you to do this? If we step back from all this and we return to the original question of, Understanding the understanding the requirements, trying to build a solution, and then having the fit. What's happening here is there seems to be a kind of I don't even know what to call it. Like there's a there's a kind of a, a almost like a spiral. There's a kind of outer level where in the big picture it's it's kind of more or less working, but then when I when I I used the prototype to to do kind of a trial i learned i learned something about the interaction between the form and the context so there's this sense of i need 
to understand the context or the demand in order to shape a solution on the supply side, right? And then I come up with some form. But now I actually need to, I mean, I could just go and build it and then be wrong and then and then waste a whole bunch of time. <laughs> but what I, what I need to do is I need to um, put some form kind of on the table. And, uh, and if I put that on the table, then I can... I can kind of learn how much fit there is. So what what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to get new requirements uh, that I didn't have before. The original kind of fitness test was between the new form that I'm making and the existing context. So, um, kind of, there's the world of what people are trying to do, and then there's this new solution that I'm trying to put in place, and is it the right solution or not? What comes out of this sort of secondary level of, of testing is that now I'm looking at not just the fit between kind of the big concept and what people are trying to do. I'm looking at the fit between individual aspects of this concept and what people are trying to do. So the question isn't, you know, is this the right approach overall? The question becomes kind of where are the points where this particular concept goes against the grain of what's needed. Where are the friction points? Where are the conflicts? There's a kind of um, recursive quality or like a self-similarity across scales where we're doing the same thing at the large level of shaping the initial project and figuring out where there are problems within what we've shaped. When we shape the original project, we set the form context boundary or we set the supply demand boundary, that dotted line in the world that says this is where the existing world stops and where the new thing begins. We set that kind of at the level of the, of the whole feature that we're building. And the, how do we actually define that boundary? Well, we do it by following a process on the demand side or in the context. That is a, a sort of cartoon version of this is you're more or less kind of following a person around and waiting until they stub their toe. And then when they stub their toe and you say, ah, I have an idea to, to prevent that from happening. Or, or um, in the sort of um, uh, non-consumption case, you, you follow somebody around and you see where they, they, they wanted to do something but weren't able to. And you say, oh, okay, I think I can fill that gap. So it's by looking at the dynamics of, of, of how someone is living 
that we identify the weak points or the opportunities and then this uh, becomes sort of the requirements on the supply side. What's interesting is that um, I, once we've shaped what we think is going to be the solution, now we can do the exact same thing, but we plug our solution in and then we kind of hit play again. And uh, either we observe what someone does or we go through some trialing some things ourselves or, or we have some use cases for testing, but we, we, we play it through. And then when we play it through, now we don't know where the problems are. We don't know where the stubbed toe happens. So part of the question is, is there going to be a place where I'm going to draw that dotted line uh, and, and circle a, a new piece of the supply that needs to change. And it could happen that, that we run a test and the whole overall concept isn't working, in which case uh, we have to draw a new boundary, a new outer boundary, let's say, the outermost boundary of like, this is where our solution fits into the existing world or the existing um, you know, product or whatever. But it could also happen that that we, we we hit play and we run run through the dynamics and we see that okay the first step worked second step seemed to work third step seemed to work and then uh, okay and then we hit a wall. So in my case, this was like needing to change the groups after they were first defined. So now we get, we rep this is where we we have the involution. This is where we like spiral in and draw the dotted line. Uh, inside as an inner boundary in the in the bigger thing that we're working on and say, okay, these other things seem to be working, but this part seems to not be working. So now I'm, I'm actually moving my form context boundary. I'm moving my supply demand boundary um, inward. I'm shrinking it and focusing it in on a specific aspect of the thing that we're shaping or we're building. And now I, I can repeat the exact same process as before. I have to, you know, come up with some solution. I have to, by by understanding the dynamics of what someone was trying to do, and and how they were struggling, use that to set requirements on the new solution. Build the new solution, or find a way to prototype it, or figure out kind of how to put something into place to learn, and then check for fitness again. It's been interesting to to see the uh, the overlap actually increasing between uh, you know this this sort of form context framing from Alexander and the supply demand framing from from jobs to be done. Uh, I, I kind of expect to see more of that. Um, it would be nice if if you know uh, we could settle on one terminology rather than kind of following them both. But this is a uh, this is the way that we work these things out. You know, if you if you want to design a language, the way to figure out what's right and what's not is to speak it. And it's in the context of real usage events that you can feel when I when I reached for that word, did it 
was it natural? Did it express what I was trying to express? Did it invoke other concepts nearby that are the the things that I kind of naturally want to go to or that are related? And uh, when does it feel stilted or or artificial or uh, clunky or, or that kind of a thing? And I think it's just by trying it out um, uh, and feeling it that 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 we can learn. So that's today's episode. You can find me on Twitter at RJS. My website is feltpresence.com. And check the show notes for references to the people and works that were mentioned on today's episode. See you next week.